Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. to be here with you. My name is Corey, one of the pastors on staff. Good to be your teaching pastor uh, for today. And so pumped to get to open up the book of Hebrews for you. If you're new to Heights, we don't really have any tricks. We just preach straight through books of the Bible. We got one sermon every week. We've totally tricked you all into coming. Um, it's good to see 1045 full because uh, all you sinners that slept in were not there this morning. So I'm thankful for you to, to be here. They did talk to me a lot, though, so I'll try to earn it. But I expect you all to be a little bit more verbal than you just were, okay? That was your moment. And then you, you already messed it up. All right? You got it? Okay, thank you. Just me and Amanda. Cool. I'll just, I'll just look this. We'll just move the whole thing this direction, okay? All right. Um, let's start by breaking the fourth wall here. Where do you go to? This is not rhetorical. Uh, where do you go to for information? What are some of the places that you go to for Information, not rhetorical. Google, great. Google loves Christians. What else? Facebook. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Social media. Unfortunately, people will go there for information. Where else do y'all go? Say what? The pastor. Okay. Yeah. Way to be churchy in church. Okay. Good. Good. Some of y'all could use a little bit more of that. Let me tell you. Um, What else? Where else do you go? What do you do? Podcasts. You guys got podcasts that are not. You're not going to be in sin to say out loud. Joe, thank you for being honest. I said that earlier. Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, you go to information. What else over here? NPR. NPR. Okay, cool. Someone said she, sheology earlier. I didn't know that was a thing. That was kind of cool. Where do you go to for information? It's a question worth asking. Uh, this last week was uh, March 8th was International Women's Day. Shout out to our ladies. And I was listening to the radio while dropping off some kids, and I don't know if they turned that on or how it actually got on there, Um, but this guy is on the radio, and he's talking about the oppression that has come against women in our society. And I thought, okay, let's just hear what this guy has to say. And he's like, you know, women have it really hard in America. And I was like, okay, I'd like to hear more about that. And he said, but we've come a long way. And I was like, that is very true. We have come a long way. What else do you have? He's like, they have it really difficult. He's kind of building out this whole thing. I'm like, okay, what is so difficult? And he's like, men just have it easier. And I'm like, for the love. Like, can you not just tell me what has happened? What's, where are you going? And he finally gets there and he goes, for example, women. Now, whenever women get gas, as far as gas pump, not the other guys. <laughs> Medical workers over here like, oh. When women are at the gas pump, they're afraid. They're very fearful. They're terrified because of the oppressive men that have come before them. I'm like, bro, you spoke that like a true misogynist just then. Like, how far removed could you be from culture that that's the thing? You have this whole entire audience of like, here's oppression. Here's what women are going through. Did you know the tremendous amount of fear that comes over them at the pump? Now, naturally, there are times where fear will come. But like a good, you know, pastor, I wanted to go to a good source of information. And so I took a poll. 
So I called all the women on staff, and I said, first off, uh, happy International Women's Day. And they're like, I did not know that was a thing. I was like, well, you're welcome. And then I said, I have a question for you. And I said, generally speaking, okay, because you have to be very clear. I said, generally speaking, ladies, are you fearful at the pump when you have to get gas? And they're like, what? And I was like, generally speaking, because good researcher has to use the same question. Generally speaking, are you fearful at the pump when you get gas? Their first response from them was, we're about to become a sermon illustration. I said, yes, you are. Thank you for your help. <laughs> and then the second thing that they said was, uh, no. And so Aaron, who just read the scripture, by the way, keep that in mind, said, uh, that guy's a moron. The second person <laughs> said, Jess said, who leads our kids, she said, uh, no, twice. And then Jody Sagers, who I love, said, I'm, quote, I'm more fearful of static electricity. <laughs> <laughs> static electricity while pumping gas kind of freaks me out. And so I was like, that's fair. <clears throat> where do you go for truth? Like, where do you go for truth? Where do you go to get the majority of your facts? I would ask, what keeps you anchored? How do you remain anchored? And so last week, the author of Hebrews he had said that truth was spoken by the prophets, and now truth has made himself, not itself, but truth has made himself known in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. He went on to tell us things like the word has, that was spoken has put on flesh, and the word that has been spoken by the prophets and the angels has made purification for sins. It is the word who did that, not humanity who did that. He says then that there's only one source of truth, and that one source of truth is the word of God as seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, one can argue, well, who are you, Corey? Who are you, pastor, to get up and say there's only one source of truth? Well, I would say, I can argue with you, maybe if you're a skeptic or non-believer in the room, we can take a historical approach to that argument. And I can say, historically speaking, the truth of God's word is the only truth that has ever shaped the world in the way that the world has been shaped. That there has never been a story, there's never been a message, there's never been a spirituality, a religion, or a school of thought that has ever come out, historically speaking, that has so radically shaped and transformed the world. Like they literally reshaped worldviews whenever it was released on creations. I've been thinking about this for months, and so thank you for the opportunity to preach because now I can pull it out of my back pocket. When you think about the things that our culture is fighting for, Think about women's rights, for example, like we just used, or social justice of some form, or prison reform, or universal health care, just to name a few. Those reforms are not from a secular worldview. They're not from a naturalist worldview or an atheistic worldview. That sort of worldview does not land you in aid. That sort of worldview says survival of the fittest, nature versus nurture, natural selection, i.e., you get what you deserve. That worldview does not say, let me come to your aid and help you. Also, when you look at Eastern religions like Hinduism or Islam, Muslim, Buddhist, their worldview that they have in those countries are not that of aid. Their poor people are seen as less than dogs in their society because of the caste system. So anytime you look at a reform or something that is happening here, uh, specifically in our country, that comes from a strictly Christian worldview. There was no worldview that brought aid like that until Jesus Christ came on the scene saying, I am the truth, the life, and the way. I am the word of God that is put on flesh. And then the church is birthed into society, and all of a sudden, people's worldviews in the Roman Empire are literally shattered 
Like it shattered their whole entire worldview. You're still tracking with me. Y'all had time to drink coffee, okay? I've been to two services. I've had two cups. We're good. I'm good. (laughs) Christians were the first to come in and care for the sick and dying, regardless of their socioeconomic status. Regardless of where they fell in society, Christians were the first to visit people in prisons. Did you know? Christians were the first people to look at a varying group of race and ethnicity and say, hey, our religion, our way of life, our gospel does not call you to step out of your race or out of your ethnicity or away from your culture. But rather, our gospel is a message of hope and salvation that actually exonerates and exalts your culture. Like there's some things you're going to walk away from for sure because we all do in Christ. But they're like, keep your dressing, keep your style of music. There's never been a religion like that. Only Christianity has done that. It is a secular worldview or an atheistic worldview that says at the end of the day, you get what you deserve. If you're going to run out an atheistic worldview all the way. If you just want to submit to it because it's cool and trendy and it's kind of hot right now to, not, to avoid Jesus, run, play that all the way through and let me know how that turns out for you. And so when Jesus came as Lord and Savior, remember last week, he's both Lord and Savior, he literally brought a worldview that shattered people's reality. That has never happened, historically speaking, which then is a good argument then, yes, for how we know that he is the source of truth. And a better life. So the question then is, where do you go for truth? Because if it is not the word of God and the gospel therein, it will be social media. It will be podcast. It will be your non-believing friends. You will, at the end of the day, anchor yourself to something, church. You're going to anchor yourself to something because you're scared to death of drifting. And yet those things you're anchored to might be good indicators that you are already adrift. And so the big idea is this. You must be anchored to the message of the gospel. If you're a note taker, if you're online, perhaps put in quotes, put in parentheses, lest you drift. You must be anchored to the message of the gospel, lest you drift. I want to ask and answer three questions today based off the text. The first question will be, what is the message of the gospel? Cat's out the bag. We give this to you every week. My hope is that one day anybody can just stand up within reason, obviously, and just be like, got it, boom. What is the message of the gospel? Why do you drift? Why do we drift? And then how do we respond? So what is the message of the gospel? If you're ready, say ready. Ready. All right, there she is. Verse 1, Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Lest we what? Drift away from it. So whenever you start a passage of scripture that begins with therefore, you have to look and see what it's. All right, there's our scholars in the family. In the beginning of Hebrews then, the author had said, as it mentioned, God spoke through the prophets. God has spoke through the angels. Now God speaks through his son and his name is Jesus Christ. And then if you remember... He used the Old Testament to make this proclamation, revealing to us that you do not um, unhinge yourself or unanchor yourself from the Old Testament for all of the Old Testament, just like the New, points to Jesus Christ as being both Lord and Savior. And then the author comes out of Hebrews and makes his audacious claims for his culture, the same audacious claims I'll make today for our culture. And he says, Jesus is Lord and Savior, and Jesus is the Son, and Jesus is the Creator, and Jesus is the Sustainer of every single millisecond of life as you know it. 
That's who Jesus is. He is nothing less, church, but he's a great deal more than that. He says Jesus is Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament in the Greek. He is Kyrios. He is the exact imprint and image of God as you know it, as he's talking to these Jews. And so the angels, he says, and the prophets, they delivered that message, and that message was about Jesus. That was last week, and all that. Actually, took us two weeks to get there, didn't it? And all of that, then he says, now, because that's true, therefore... Exclamation point, I would add if I were writing in the ESV. Therefore, right? Because that's true, you have to pay attention. You have to pay close attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away. And so what's interesting about this, on one aspect, is this is not a rebuke from the author of Hebrews. He's not saying you have drifted away. He's not saying you have necessarily neglected in this moment. He's saying that it is a possibility. And so the the author of Hebrews is giving a warning to the church. He's saying you could drift away, right? When you think about maybe you're a parent in the room and you got some kiddo that's acting out, right? And you're like, keep playing with me. Keep playing with me and see what happens, right? You're just, you're like not saying, hey, you're necessarily in the wrong right now, but you're about to get smoked, right? We, we spank in the Johnson household, okay? You can put that out online. That's a real thing. We'll say that as a concession, not as a command. That's how we take care of business. Think about maybe if you're driving, Right, and you're about to roll into some construction or something. It says falling rocks ahead, merging lanes. There's going to be a flagger that's out there in the distance. The point of those signs, the purpose of that sign is not to say you're already there, but it's to say if you do not change course, something bad is going to happen, either to you or to someone else. And so the author here says, pay closer attention, lest you drift. Pay closer attention to this message. And so Tim Keller, one of my favorite uh, authors, pastors, writers. Uh, he says here in the, in the Greek original, it actually says, be furiously obsessed. Be furiously obsessed and pay closer attention. Be furiously obsessed in the Greek original. That is in church. Now we can get into some conviction, yes? You are to be furiously obsessed with what you have heard, lest you drift away. You are to be furiously obsessed with the message of the gospel. Let me ask you, are you furiously obsessed with the word of God? Can you confidently say, as men and women who stood earlier in a call to worship, say, we worship this God. Can you confidently say, now with the lights on, I am furiously obsessed with the gospel message. I'm furiously obsessed with God's commands. I'm furiously obsessed with the spiritual disciplines that he's given me. To which we, none of us in this room, could say yes. We could say at times, perhaps, yeah? But not all the time. Can you say you are furiously obsessed with him? And so if you think about it like this with me, I was thinking about a boat. Now I'm a pastor, so I don't make enough money to own a boat. But your best boat is your best friend's boat. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so if anyone else said yeah, then they don't own a boat either. <laughs> Think about a boat with me. I've not anchored a lot of boats, but I've spent a little bit of time out there. Uh, When you throw out that anchor, there's a few things that I know that need to happen. When that anchor is thrown out, you need to feel a little bit of that vibration from the thud from where it hits something on the bottom. Yeah, is that right for boat owners? Yes. Now you know who owns the boat. See? (laughs) That's how that works. Stage right over here. Yeah. You got to feel that thud, boom, you feel a little bit of that vibration. It's very subtle, but it's very important. And then you test that line, then you tie that line off, maybe that little figure eight thing that you all do that own boats. And then the next thing you do is you find an anchor point on the shoreline. And maybe it's a tree or a sign, it's an object of some sort that's stationary. 
And what you do then over the course of time, if you're being reasonable and above reproach and not too many drinks then on the lake, is you, you take a look at that anchor point and you go, have we drifted? And it's not like you don't throw out an anchor and just go, hope for the best, team. <laughs> you know, like that's not going to go well for you, right? But what does go well is you don't, you don't even look at it like it's not hourly. You're like, if you think about it, you're just kind of looking at it every now and again throughout the whole day. One could say you are in some ways furiously obsessed with that anchor point. Why? Well, because you don't want to be led adrift. You don't want to end up in the rocks or somewhere else downstream or away from the rest of the party. And so here it is in this text. The author has said you are to be furiously obsessed with what you have heard. You're to be anchored to what you have seen and heard. You are to observe it. You're to analyze it. You're to be constantly checking in and looking for that anchor point. And for the Christian church, the anchor point is Christ, and it is his perfect life and his cross that hangs out over there that he died on to atone for us, and it's the resurrection, and it's how all these things are pointing to this central focus, this center of all existence and reality. That's your anchor point. And so our responsibility then as Christians is to look at that point and go, am I adrift or am I actually anchored in on the gospel, in my parenting, in my family, within my marriage, in my vocation, as a student, wherever you're at, all things have to be filtered through the lens of the gospel. That's how we remain anchored in there. That is, how, that is what it looks like to be furiously obsessed with the word of God and with his Gospel, not just the commands, lest you turn to legalism, but also the truth that he has set you free in Christ Jesus. So first verse, second verse then is this, for since the message declared by the angels, this is a little wordy, for since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, that's a mouthful, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so what is happening here in the text, let me kind of break this down for you. The author has already said the prophets and the angels delivered a message that was reliable. And now he's stepping in and saying, kind of giving us an understanding of what that message was. And this might kind of catch you off guard a little bit, but the message that he's referencing here is the law. The Hebrew covenant, you could say, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, the covenant in Mount Sinai, the Torah, the Pentateuch, whatever word you want to use. And if you're like, bro, I don't know what any of those words mean, just crack a Bible, look at the table of contents, and circle the first five books of the Bible. That's what he's saying. That's essentially what he's saying. You guys tracking with that? And so he's saying, that's the message. All five books? Yes. All five books they were given. And so the law, he's saying, that law, however, that law said, if you break me, I'll break you. That was the Old Testament law. If you break me, I'll break you. If you do not keep the law, you're going to be punished. If you do not keep the law, you're going to end up in death. And he's saying that, mass, that message, that was the message that was delivered by the prophets. That was the message that was delivered by the angels. And that was the message that was proved, that has proved to be reliable. And he's saying that is what happened. When they broke the law, they got broken. So then he's saying now with the gospel in mind, how much more severe, perhaps, would the punishment be? How much more severe might it be if Jesus himself has delivered this message about himself for salvation? How much more might the retribution be? And so he's saying here, while there is grace, there's also a reality where we have to understand a little bit about the Old Testament law to really get what he is saying here, which means we got to camp out on the law. So can I, I got the mic and all, you know, can I teach you a little bit about the Old Testament law? It's going to be like drinking out of a water hose or a fire hydrant. A water hose is not near severe enough. A fire hydrant. Let me teach you a little bit about it. 
Before Jesus came in the flesh, in the flesh, that is, God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. Okay? Uh, that's the message that the angels and the prophets would have been bringing. And that message would have been keep the law or get punished. That's kind of the way that they perceived it. The law, as you might think about it, perhaps if you're raised in the church and you did flannel grams and stuff in your Sunday school, uh, perhaps you can recall the Ten Commandments, or at least some of those Ten Commandments. Well, the law isn't just Ten Commandments. The law is 613 commandments that were given at Mount Sinai across five different books that is called the Torah. And stay with me here. The law revealed the character and the nature of God, revealed His holiness And the way that we know that is because the law simultaneously exposed that we were not perfect, that we could not, in fact, keep that law. Does that make sense for you? And so as you engage these 613 commands and you get this feeling of like, I can never measure up. I can never do that. That's the purpose of the law. It actually reveals God is perfect and God is glorious and God is holy. And you're not those things. Like as often as you might want to compare yourself to him in that way, it reveals you just read the law and it'll read you. You'd be like, dang, I'm not all I thought I was cracked up to be, am I? And so it reveals this need for a Savior. For Israel, all they knew was punishment for breaking that law, which did often land them in death. It most certainly regularly ended them in some level of sacrifice to atone for their breaking the law. You begin to see the gospel in there a little bit. There always has to be a sacrifice to atone for breaking the law. You guys see the... Okay, you guys see some of the gospel in there? Okay. I'm like 10 years in now. Somebody got to be with me in this moment. And so instead of worshiping God and seeing God's character as it's revealed in the law, thus leading them to worship him because he's good and right, the Israelites went the opposite direction. And they said this. They said, oh, here's the law. We're going to take it. And instead of worshiping Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're going to be Lord and we're going to be Savior. And so what would happen is that Israel would then turn and they would try to be Lord over their own lives and they would try to manage the law and do all 613 commands. And then they started creating commands to help them keep the commands. So now there's 613, 10 as you know it, became thousands of commands. How do you think that felt for them? Could you imagine the weight of expectation that has been placed on them? And all they knew then as a people was, whenever I'm Lord, I can't keep these commands. And so instead of turning to God and worshiping him, they go, we're going to be the Savior. We got it. And then they fall after Old Testament gods that you read about. And that basically sums up the Old Testament in a nutshell. All Israel knew was this sort of religion, a religion full of laws and full of punishments. And the author is saying now, this is tricky, because the author is saying the message of the law is reliable. So don't gauge the way you read the Old Testament. Don't gauge the way, way you read the law based off the people of God. Base it off the word of God and what it was meant to do, because the law was meant to reveal his character and reveal your need for him. That's good. That's reliable, because what happens then whenever you kind of let that beat itself into you a bit is it goes, man, I need a savior. I need a Lord. This is why Israel's always longing for the Messiah. They're always looking out and longing for him to come and to redeem them and to save them. The author of Hebrews says that message is good. It is reliable. But that message in and of itself is not enough. It is not enough to save you because there was no savior there yet, not yet in the text. And so the law, the message from the angels was not enough to bring redemption. The law I would word it like this. If you're a note taker, you can write this down maybe. The law reveals what the gospel saves you from. The law reveals what the gospel saves you from. Tim Keller would say, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm loved. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm loved. The gospel says, I am loved, therefore I obey. 
And so the message of the gospel is that you cannot save yourself. You are neither Lord, nor are you going to be Savior. The only way that you can ever experience any form of redemption or salvation is through Jesus Christ. Well, you can ask them, well, what does Jesus do? That's a good question. That's what I would ask. That's what I would ask if I were sitting there. I would say, as the speaker, then I would say this. Jesus saves you by upholding the law. The very thing that you basically know nothing about in this room, although you should, Jesus steps into and perfectly upholds it in your place as your substitute. The reason Jesus has to go to the cross and die for you is because you can't keep the law. And so he kept it perfect. And even though the father looks at him and goes, man, you are the manifestation of my perfect character as seen in your ability to keep this law. I'm going to kill you. Kill him for who? Well, for those that don't even know the law in the room. For those that don't even know how to keep the law in the room. That's the gospel. And so Jesus goes to the cross because there's a legal consequence for you not being able to keep the law. Like you're not just getting away with it for free in here. Jesus died for you. That's why you have breath in your lungs right now. The gospel is worth understanding and taking time to get into. It's worth being ferociously obsessed with. And here's what's crazy. Not only does Jesus live the perfect life and die the most humiliating death in your place as your substitute, Jesus also sends you the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do, pastor? What does he do? What does he write on your hearts? Oh, he writes the law on your hearts. He writes his very character and his nature upon your hearts. Where did you think conviction came from? Whenever you have a good day and you look more like Jesus, it's not because of your good works, church. It's because the Holy Spirit in you has produced some fruit. There is nothing that you will ever do in and of yourself to save yourself or make yourself look better. This is what the Son does for us. He keeps the law perfectly, takes it to the cross, resurrects anew, and institutes a whole new covenant of grace. This is where we get the new covenant. You guys still tracking with all that? All right, first service only had a half a cup of coffee and an hour less sleep, and they were with me. So what's beautiful about this in the gospel, you got to like, gosh, what's beautiful about this is whenever the gospel begins to take up residence in your life, like when you see that grace and that mercy and you understand what you've been set free from and what Jesus Christ himself has done, the byproduct of understanding the gospel is this. Now you want to follow his commands because you're like, your commands reveal your character. I want to walk in your character. I want to look more like Jesus every day. And so then you turn and you say, what do you have for me? The only right response, I believe, whenever you're encountered with the gospel and you begin to get it, is to look to Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord and Savior, and say, command me. And whenever I fail, oh, God, give me what is due to me in Christ Jesus. Give me mercy and give me grace. Whenever he says be furiously obsessed, he's saying be furiously obsessed with that reality. Like don't obsess on the commands, know the word of God, and then obsess on the grace and obsess on the mercy and obsess on the reality that God has come and sent his son to save you and die for you. And the apostle Paul would say, be transfixed on that reality that this is who Jesus is. Whenever you're low and you're like, I can't do this, I can't keep this thing, I'm struggling to keep it. The apostle Paul says, keep your eyes transfixed on the second coming of Christ. In all areas of life, be transfixed upon him and then receive the spirit that has been given to you, lest we turn. Well, what happens when we don't walk out being anchored in the gospel? Well, you'll be just like the Israelites. You're going to try to be Lord. You're going to take either God's law or you're going to take some other law you've kind of fabricated in your mind that makes you feel good about yourself, and you're going to try to keep that. In your own self-righteousness, you're going to worry all about what everyone else is seeing in you, and you're going to try to make, kind of manufacture some things you think you can, some laws on top of the laws, just like the Israelites. You'll try to be Lord, or you'll try to be Savior. 
And you'll say, I don't need God's word. I don't need the church and its organized religion, although it's always been organized, by the way. I don't need mission community. I don't need all these things. I can save myself. And as a Christian, you'll move from, you'll run from just, not just drifting, but then deconstruction. And you'll begin to dismantle and deconstruct your faith, and you'll do it all in isolation, apart from the people of God. Can I keep pressing this a little bit further? Well, we got a little bit of time here. Let me take you on a bit of journey in God's word, yeah? The first comes from Romans 7, verses 7 through 14. Thank you, Debbie. Let me just point out the Apostle Paul writing here. He's going to further press the, the point. He says, what then shall we say? Okay, stay with me, okay? That the law is sin? Well, by no means, exclamation point. Yet if it had not been for the law, the commands of God, the Mosaic law, I would not have known sin, for I, would have, sorry, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law did not say, hey, you shall not covet. Ten commandments, by the way. Verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, Sin lies dead because there's no one there to tell you that you're in it. Verse 9, I was once alive, quote, or so I thought. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. You get what he's saying here still. He's saying that the, the law reveals his sinfulness. Verse 10, the very commandment, the very law that promised life proved to be death because it revealed sin to him. Verse 11, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? He says, by no means. It's not the law itself that killed him because the law revealed he was a sinner. Sin killed was killing him. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I know it's wordy and a lot. I promise you, if you can wrap your mind around the tension of law and gospel, it'll change every millisecond of your life from this day forward. That's a bold and true statement, church. So what he's saying is, I didn't know what it was to Covet. I didn't know that that was a bad thing. You could, using the Ten Commandments, you could say, I didn't know what it was to commit adultery. I didn't know what it was to lie. I didn't know what it was to be greedy. I didn't know what it was. But then the law came in and said, hey, you're those things. And I was like, whoa, I am those things. The law revealed who I am, reveals the perfect character. God reveals my need for a Savior, reveals who he is and who I am in him. He says, were it not for that law, I would have never known that. Like, I need that law to come to me. God, you need the word of God to come to you as you open up the word of God. You need it to open you up, church, and read your, read your pages. Are you with me? You need godly men and women in your life. That's why we do missional community. Godly men in your wife will say, brother, sister, they'll plead with you. This is not of the Lord. You're not walking out godliness right now. You're adrift. You're killing your marriage. You're a terrible parent at times. You need the Lord. You need this. You're not a good business owner. You have poor work ethic. Like, I'm looking in the Word, and I'm just seeing you in that, right? And seeing it in myself. You guys with me? Like, I don't know that I want to be a part of that type of church. Wrong house. (laughs) Okay? This is what you're going to get. And so he said, I need this in my life, because it actually reveals a need for a Savior. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 11. You got to cook through here. Verse 4. 
such is the confidence, listen, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Okay? The only reason we need to come into the presence of God is because of Jesus. Verse 5, not that we are sufficient because we cannot save ourselves. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us because we cannot do it on our own. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not the old covenant, not of the letter. That's a reference to the Mosaic law. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter, what? Kills, because it only reveals sin. You still with me? For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Verse 7, now if the ministry of death, harsh words, yes? Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, talking about Mount Sinai, came with such glory, though, that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Like he's making a reference here. Whenever Moses would go into the temple and receive a word from the Lord, he would come out and his face would shine like the sun. And it shocked the Israelites so much so that in their sin, they had him veil his face because they could not handle the glory of the Lord. He says, will this, ministry, will this new ministry, will this ministry of the Spirit, will this new covenant not have even more glory? Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Verse 10, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have what? No glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if it was being brought to an end, sorry, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, oh, much more well, what is permanent, have glory. There's a new covenant that we have been invited into church. And the author of Hebrews is saying the message was reliable and good, but it was also incomplete. There was no salvation within the original, within that covenant, within the Hebrew covenant. It only revealed the glory of God and his righteousness and our brokenness as humanity. It's because the law cannot save you. That means legalism cannot save you. It means your good works, church, cannot save you. Jesus saves you. That's the beauty of the gospel. We deserve death, and Jesus took that death. He walked in the perfection that we're called to walk in, and we cannot walk in, and he walked in it for us. And then he takes it to the cross, and he atones for our sins, and he resurrects to new life. And then the very thing he upheld, he sends into your soul. My gosh, y'all need to step it up in here. It's called, the, it's called the doctrine of your union with Christ. It's like my favorite Doctrine, right? Jeff's not here. I can say it's freaking crazy, like what is happening here. Think, I mean, think about it. I know you, okay, let me, think, let me teach. I'm here to teach you. Let me teach you. Like, the, the doctrine of union Christ says that the, the Father sits on the throne and sees us through the lens of his Son. That's crazy to me, man. That, like, on my worst day, on your worst day while you're braiding your kids on the way here, just telling them to shut up and swatting on the way to church, he's like, oh man, you got it nailed today, right? How does he do that? When you overreact and you judge your spouse or your friend or coworker and you're acting belligerent and ignorant, the father looks at you through the lens of the son and goes, that's mine. They're mine. Those are my sons and my daughters. And he, oh, he only gets to see us that way because of the perfect work of Jesus in your place? Come on, dude. And then you're like, then he frees us from self-condemnation, literally self-death, because he goes through the cross and hammers all that into himself. And he's like, that's why I'm here. You don't even have to beat yourself up about it. Receive the godly guilt, turn in faith and repent and come back to me again and again and again. And then his resurrection becomes our resurrection. Like there is hope for us in Christ Jesus because of the finished work. My goodness, there is hope for you, church. In your absolute worst 
moments, wherever you're at in life, in relationships, there is a resurrection hope given to the Christian. No matter where you're going through, there is resurrection hope. That is union with Christ. Jesus' life becomes my life, his death, our death, his resurrection, our resurrection. How can you not be furiously obsessed with that? Gosh, I feel like there should be revival in here right now, you know? Hey, at the end of the day, if I'm only the one that's ever excited, I'm in the right place. And so he says, keep your eyes then on the shoreline. Keep your eyes anchored. Be anchored to this, lest you start drifting. And so why do we drift? What keeps us from paying very close attention? Well, the answer is here in verse 3. Verse 3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How do we escape judgment if we neglect such a great salvation? This point doesn't have to be more than it needs to be right here. You drift whenever you neglect salvation. It's just right there in the text, yeah? You drift whenever you hear like the beauty of the gospel and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and he's the son of God and all things are pointing to him. And whenever you hear that and see that, instead of saying transfix on that, you just kind of go, hmm. Okay. And in that moment when you go, hmm, okay, you can look around your family. You can look around those of you in school and a little bit younger, your relationships there in college. You look around your vocational relationships. And what you'll see is all these little indicator lights going off that say, hey, you're probably drifting. And what happens is those indicator lights become something much more like a wildfire. And lo and behold, you're no longer just drifting anymore. You're full on moving into deconstruction because you've become unanchored and untethered to the truth of the gospel. And so if you remember last week, whenever I was uh, preaching, I talked about the reality that the, the audience there wanted Jesus to be Savior, but did not want him to be Lord, if you remember that. And so they tried to demote him lower than the angels, but he is simultaneously Lord and Savior. Well, what's interesting is that this week reveals that whenever we become unhinged or unanchored from the gospel, what we do is we actually then turn similar to the Israelites. And we will also, we'll try to split up Lord and Savior, and we become typically one or the other, and sometimes we try to become both. And so as Savior, what will happen is that you'll kind of step into a reality where you go, man, like, I don't know about being in the presence of Jesus. I don't know about having a relationship with Jesus. I don't know that I've felt him or experienced him. I'm just going to like cling to the word, but I'm going to cling to the word, not in a healthy way, but in a way that says, what do I need to do to make myself better? What do I need to do to clean myself up? What do I need to do? What you're saying is this, how do I feel better about myself? And what happens is then you'll turn in self-righteousness fueled by legalism and through your own obedience, you'll try to define your relationship with God based off of your good works. And so what then happens then is that something tragic happens. You have a hard season in your family or your kid gets put in rehab or your wife gets diagnosed with cancer or you don't get some job promotion that you wanted and all of a sudden you're like, well, where are you, Lord? Where have you been? Which is a good question to ask. But then it's followed up with, I've been doing all the right things. And what you're saying is there is, why don't you perform for me? Because I'm performing for you. I'm reading all the right things. I'm tithing the right amount of money. I showed up on the first Sunday and they talked about money for the first time in four months. I'm going to give to that thing so I feel better about myself. And you're like, he's like, I've been here the whole time. Looking at you through the lens of Christ. Why are you striving? What are you striving for? I've already given you everything that you're aspiring to right now. 
There's nothing more that he can do for you. Folks who are Lord tend to say things like, I know what it means to be a Christian. You don't have to tell me about it. I know what the word of God says. You don't have to remind me about it. You can't teach me anything. I've heard actually told, had someone tell me that. I said, I am younger than you, but this is 2,000 plus years old. I think it's got us both. Let's take a look at it. Maybe, maybe it'll do something for you. So you come in here with all this anger and all this frustration, and the reason is because you are adrift. You've become unanchored to the gospel. Let me ask you, for those of you that know you're struggling with legalism, when's the last time you felt the presence of Jesus apart from your good works? Like you were just standing solo in the kitchen, and all of a sudden the Lord showed up. And it was like, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased. Or you can turn the other direction, and you go to grace and grace alone, and you're going to try to be the Lord over your own life, or in this way you could say Savior over your own life, and you're going to run from God, and you're going to run from his commands, you're going to say, I don't need the word, I don't need people, I don't need to give to a church, I don't need missional community, I don't want to deal with the kids that are in there, I deserve more than that, I've had a hard week, and all you're doing is making excuses, trying to be your own Savior on the run. Behind the scenes, cats out the back here, we call you runners, that's what we call you as staff. I don't mean that to be, well, you didn't laugh, fortunately, because it wasn't supposed to be funny, but we haven't, like, we're like looking at the body of Christ as a whole as part of Heights community, and you got somebody just taken off that way, and you're like, that's a runner for sure. And as we get into your story, we're like, that's exactly right. You're trying to be your own Lord over your own life. And so you run from community and you run from all the things that we're offering to you. And you run from God's word and you don't, couldn't read, didn't, couldn't quote a scripture verse to save your life. Because you're like, I don't need it. And then something tragic happens. And all of a sudden, you are the ones that are ridden with the most amount of insecurity in your life. And you're like, where are you at, Lord? And he's like, I've been here the whole time. Already saved, already redeemed. Why are you running? Oh, and like the prodigal son, he's just standing outside on the, on the path just waiting on you to come back home. Just waiting to come back home. Look, we don't invite you into spiritual disciplines, the things we mentioned, gospel, community, mention, give, uh, mission, giving, HC Institute, all the things that we have. We don't invite you into those things because we're so wildly dependent on you to succeed that we need you. We, we invite you into various forms of spiritual disciplines because they're anchor points for you. And so there are things that you can look at and, and very easily connect to you and say, man, that, that tree is kind of, it's quite a ways off from where it once was. And so when you think about spiritual disciplines, you get to walk out spiritual disciplines. They don't redeem you and save you. You've already been saved and redeemed. And so the things that we've given to you is so that you, when you're out kind of floating in the crazy world of Western ideology and culture, you can go, the tree's off. Something's amiss. I must be adrift. There are opportunities to be warned. And so when you run from those things, they reveal that you're not just adrift anymore. You might be leading into deconstruction. You might be dismantling your faith as we know it. So how do we respond to this final point here? The team can come back up. I'll be quick. Verse 3 and 4 says this, and this will be simple for you. He says, it, that's the gospel, has declared, was declared, sorry, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by us, attested to us by those who heard, that's the apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed 
according to his will. So the author of Hebrews here, Wordy, once again, in short, is saying this. You can trust the word of God to be faithful. It, it is the only thing that has completely changed and altered the whole entire worldview for everyone. He says the angels talked about it. The prophets talked about it. The Lord Jesus himself has talked about it. The apostles have brought it in and they've talked about it. The church has been birthed through signs and wonders. It is reliable. It is worth being furiously obsessed about. And you can say, well, how do I know? How do I know, pastor? Because we're, I hope this hits the way I wanted to. Because 2,000 plus years later, you're in a pagan land still worshiping Jesus Christ. Like, this is one of the most difficult countries to be a Christian in, and yet we get to be a part of a church that is continuing to grow. That's not because you have really great leaders. It's because you have a really significant Jesus. Like, just think about it. Lord of heaven and earth, known as Jesus Christ, and we are in a pagan land worshiping him. How do you know miracles still happen? Because we're here. How do you know the Holy Spirit still moves? Because you're sitting here. Because people are coming to faith in missional communities. Because folks are hearing the gospel and responding. Because two weeks ago, babies are, not babies literal, but uh, students are up here getting baptized. That's how you know the Lord is moving. You just open your eyes. And then dig into his word and let his word wash over you. And as it washes over, it's going to renew you and remind you of the grace and mercy of the gospel. And you stay transfixed on that. That is how you respond. Why don't you all stand with me? So move into communion and offer. If you do like to give during this time, feel free. The boxes are on either side of the stage. Uh, every week we do communion together as a family. You don't have to be a member at Heights to take communion. You do have to be one who has submitted themselves to the gospel. So if you've not yet professed faith in this Jesus, this is an opportunity uh, for you to respond. How do I respond? Maybe you need to profess faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant. It's a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For those of you that are in Christ, you'll see in a moment when you come forward, there's bread up here that represents Christ's body broken for you in your place as your substitute. There's also cups, a cup up here that represents Christ's blood spilt for you in your place as your substitute. And so as you come up to take communion, it is actually an opportunity for you to redirect your gaze. It's an opportunity to be re-anchored into the Lord, to be repositioned upon the anchor point, the focal point of the gospel as communion reveals what Jesus has done for you as Lord and Savior. So for those of you who are in Christ, feel free to come forward when you're ready.